This is Mormon Awakenings. You can email me your questions or comments to mormonawakenings at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook at Mormon Awakenings or Jack Nanique. Welcome back. It's report card season here in New England. The term just ended right before Thanksgiving, and so all the kids came home with their report cards. You know report cards. The piece of paper you get at the end of the trimester. And on this piece of paper are grades, and the grades measure how well you've been domesticated by the man over the past couple months. How well you're able to master the material the man gave you. How well you were able to present the material back to the man. All the while, unbeknownst to you, the man is domesticating you, preparing you for some future that you don't even know exists, that you can't even imagine. Preparing you for jobs, professions, making a living, sending you down the chute like so much cattle in which your individuality, your new uniqueness, your wildness will be slaughtered and served up like so much hamburger, leaving only your shell, your domesticated shell. And this shell can only react in a Pavlovian fashion to every dictate of the future man, whoever that future man is. Your boss, your customer, the bank that holds a mortgage on your house, who knows? And it all starts in school with the report card, doesn't it? Okay, I'm done now. Are you depressed yet? That was a pretty grim depiction of our educational system. Intentionally grim, by the way, and sort of a joke. It's kind of joking being extreme to make a point. Though it's easy to find people who have this attitude, and there's something to it. I mean, there's something about the mean old elders manipulating you and training you like a pup. You know, we see these horrible images pervade in Dickensian novels or in Pink Floyd albums or talked about in Alan Watts videos. And all of these talk about how we're conditioned and how terrible that conditioning is and And it's horrible, and I guess there's something to it. I mean, it resonates with us, doesn't it? So there's something to it. This idea that we're kind of trapped inside this system, and the system's tamping out the life out of us and just turning us into a cog, into a robot. I mean, there's something to that kind of dystopian system is horribles. Of course, what's left out of this discussion is what would happen if there were no system at all? What would happen if there were no education, no tests? What would happen? Well, I think we have some inkling of what would happen. There have been books like Lord of the Flies that have been written to examine this very question. And what happens in Lord of the Flies? Piggy gets his head bashed in by the conch shell. And there's something about that type of imagery that really resonates with us as well. There's something terrifying and destructive about unbridled tribalism. You know, Lord of the Flies, if you remember, is about a group of schoolboys from upper crust British aristocratic families. And they get stranded on this island because of a shipwreck. And then they slowly devolve into this group of cannibals and headhunters and, you know, basically animals who have no way of controlling their base or more violent tribal aspects of their personalities. And and in the end, they end up killing this, uh, spoiler alert, folks, but in the end, they end up killing one of their own, the Fat Piggy. That was the nickname that they gave the portly kid, Piggy. And in a battle for alpha status, one of the boys picks up the symbol of the Alpha, the conch shell, and smashes Piggy's head in, killing him. And then they leave him and his brains, which are spewing out to rot in the sun. You know, and this is what happens to upper crust aristocrats when there's no formal education around, no one to domesticate them. And it's a freaky tale. Again, I don't know why they make elementary school students read this, 
but it's a freaky tale. There's something that resonates with us, although I thought it was a freaky book. And who knows, maybe it was just a one more manipulation by the man to try to trick us into compliance, submission to their control by painting this false picture of what will happen to you if, you know, I don't think that's really what was going on. I mean, I think The Lord of the Flies is a fairly believable account of what can happen to us without rules and order and education and some sort of discipline, domestication, because we know there's something primal and undisciplined and hostile deep within us that needs to be tamed, needs domestication. And so while the tropes bemoaning the oppression we feel by our domesticators resonates with us, you know, Pink Floyd and the Off the Wall album resonates with people for a reason, so too do books like Lord of the Flies or zombie apocalypse movies or end-of-day dystopian movies. They resonate with us as well, but they scare us but they resonate with us because they're conveying something that's true, a true idea, a true concept. And there's constant tension between the two. On the one side, libertine, unbridled wildness. On the other, organized, disciplined, structured domestication. There are a couple condescending, sort of academic-y sounding terms that help us understand the two sides of this coin and the tension between them. On the one hand is the exoteric, and exoteric refers to the the rules and the knowledge and the norms that are open, transparent, easily understandable by all members of the group. In fact, members of the group who can't grasp the obviously exoteric aspects of the group are considered deficient, handicapped, weird, odd. You know, as an example, there are rules of etiquette and general hygiene in Western society. And so the kid who's constantly picking his nose, for example, and wiping it on his sleeve and isn't furtive at all about it, you know, that guy doesn't get the obviously exoteric rules of general hygiene accepted by the group at large. And obviously, whether something is considered exoteric or not can be judged on a spectrum. And I'll show you what I mean by this. A few years ago, the temple president of the local temple here, the Belmont Temple, went around to the stakes in the wards giving lessons and opening himself up to Q&As to encourage people to attend the temple. So he came to our ward. This guy was a former professor at Brown University, which is about an hour from where I live. So this guy was an erudite guy, you know, had charisma and knew how to present. And he gave this very interesting lesson about the symbolism of the temple and the history of the ordinances, et cetera, et cetera. And he was kind of an interesting approach to encourage people to attend and At the end of this pretty interesting, unique presentation, he opened it up for Q&A, and there's this guy in my ward who raised his hand and said, isn't it true, President, that back in Utah, Brigham Young used to have other men sealed to him as his sons? You know, so sort of a controversial question. And this temple president just sort of drooped and his shoulders rounded, and he sighed, and then he said, well, I, I guess that's the danger of opening it up to questioning. So what was going on? There's sort of this exoteric subtly, I mean, it's a subtle exoteric rule, but there's sort of an exoteric rule in church anyways, that you don't talk about all the weird stuff that we used to do. And you try to be positive and spin things in a positive way. And if a temple president comes to speak at your ward, you don't start stirring up controversies like Brigham Young sealing other men to him as his sons for his extended kingdom in heaven and, you know, blood atonement. You, you don't kind of raise that. So again, I offer that story because, you know, what's exoteric or what's not, it's, it's, can be judged along a spectrum. 
but it's kind of the rules, the norms, the culture of the group. It's not hidden. And it can be contrasted, that which is exoteric, that is, with that which is esoteric. And esoteric is specific, limited, somewhat hidden even. The esoteric is understood by just a few, the initiated, the highly qualified, specialized. You could even push it so far as to say the esoteric is the highly internal, individualistic. Something that is not understood by the masses. It's a term that is usually applied to skills or trades or particular sets of knowledge that are complicated, hard to understand, convoluted, and you had to have specialized knowledge to get it. But in a more broad use, it can mean anything that's kind of internal, not open, not out there for all to see and understand. And we're all kind of whipped in life in one way or another to conform to the exoteric rules and regulations and norms. We just are. And, and I think in general, you, you want to be mindful of those things and be aware of them and, and comply. You know, you don't want to be the kid that's constantly picking his nose in public or asking the totally oddball question. And we can see the weight that people carry around when they either refuse to accept what is exoteric or they openly rebel against it. You know, there's a minimum of exoteric knowledge and skill required just to function in the world. You know, if you're Tom Hanks living on the deserted island, compliance with the exoteric is not required because you're, you know, living in a loincloth hunting fish and there's no one else on the island except you. But that's not the experience most of us are having while we're here. Yet at the same time, I think it's pretty obvious to all of us that we're living our lives in our heads and in our hearts. That's where we experience life. That's also the only thing that we can control that also starts to sound a lot like the esoteric, the specific, the individualistic. And I think our esoteric individualistic experiences are greatly shaped by how we react, deal with, function in the exoteric environments of our lives. They're two sides of a coin, inextricably linked, even if there's tension between the two. One side constantly informing the other back and forth and back and forth. And there's almost no resolving it. There's almost no picking sides. There's just kind of accepting both at the same time. Well, that's weird. Can it be? And if so, what's the best way to proceed? Or put another way, what's the whole point of that tension, that dynamic? One of the questions I like to ask is, Given that something is the way it is in life, what's the point of that isness? What is the lesson to be drawn? How is that fact instructive? There is an awesome and seldom talked about story in the Old Testament that kind of illustrates the tension between the exoteric and the esoteric and how the two are related and how dealing with that tension can create something quite dramatic and beautiful. And the story in the Old Testament that I'm referring of is the story of Hadassah, which is the Hebrew name for Esther. Well, it's not the Hebrew name for Esther. It's, it's Esther's Hebrew name because Esther was a Jew living in exile in Persia. And so she had two names. She had a Hebrew name, Hadassah, and then she had a Persian name, Esther. Esther, as you may recall, became queen of Persia as an exiled Jew. Well, that's interesting. And she became queen in the most unlikely of ways. She won a beauty contest. The king of Persia at the time was a bit of a drunk, and at one of these banquets, when he was completely inebriated, he requested that his wife, previous to Hadassah, or Esther, 
whose name was Vashti, he, re- he requested that Vashti come in to the banquet and display her beauty for all the other people at the banquet. Now, that's kind of an odd request. We're not quite sure if what he was really asking her to do was to parade around naked or wear some gown or something. or But whatever it was, it was demeaning, insulting, and Vashti said, no, forget it. She'd had enough of this, and so the king deposed her. He said, well, if you're not going to parade your beauty around for my, for my friends at the banquet, what's, what use are you? You're out. And so you get a sense pretty early in the story what kind of character this king of Persia really was. And his subsequent actions do nothing to dispel these initial impressions. Because after he deposed Vashti, his method for replacing her, for getting a new queen, was to hold a beauty contest. And whoever won the beauty contest was going to be his new queen. So, you know, that's the kind of guy the king was. And, well, Hadassah slash Esther entered the beauty contest. So we get a sense of kind of where she was at in her spiritual progression. She thought, well, if I enter this beauty contest, I get to be queen, and I'm pretty good-looking, and I'm going to go for it. So she does, and she wins. You know, it's easy to judge her and say, oh, how vapid, and oh, this terrible king, and how horrible and shallow all these people are. But remember, it's 500 BC. Nobody's heard of Susan B. Anthony yet. This is the cultural norm. These are the rules of society. This is the way things worked. And the king and Vashti and all the people at the banquet and Esther slash Hadassah, they all kind of understood all things exoteric. And if you're great looking and the king's holding a beauty contest and you could become queen, well, you do that. But Esther slash Hadassah had a little secret, a little something on the inside of her that the king didn't know about and probably no one else knew about, at least no one conducting the beauty contest. And that's that she was a Jew. We don't know if it was illegal for Jews to participate in the beauty contest, but we can infer that, at a minimum, her disclosing her ethnicity wouldn't have helped her. At a minimum, the Jews were marginalized people, a separate group of lesser thans, and so Esther slash Hadassah just chose not to tell anybody. She just kind of kept that part to herself. Well, shortly after she became queen, her uncle, Mordecai, had an interesting experience. One night, Outside the palace gates, he overhears a couple rogue guards of the king plotting to kill the king. Now, Mordecai, unlike Esther slash Hadassah, wasn't secretive about his ethnicity. He was kind of open about it, and he was not ashamed of it. And he's a pretty straightforward guy, and he hears this plot against the king, and he thinks as a good subject of Persia, whose niece happens to be the queen, maybe he ought to say something. So he does. He goes to Esther, and he says, hey, there are these two guards out here and they're plotting to kill the king and Esther tells the king and the king thinks, wow, thanks. Nice job, Mordecai. And he enters it into his chronicle, the history, the record. He has his chronicler record. Hey, this guy, Mordecai, he saved my life by telling me about this secret plan to kill me. And let's keep a record of that just in case we want to find this Mordecai guy in the future. And nice job, Mordecai. Well, while all this is happening, there's this other guy, Haman. And Haman's the kind of guy who rises in societies where the king's a drunk and holds beauty contests to find his new queen. You know, not a great guy, a manipulative guy, a mean guy. He's the type of guy who sort of figures out a way to rise to the top. He's an Agagite, too, by the way, because Persia's kind of a melting pot of all the Middle Eastern cultures. And the Agagites were Canaanites, And of all the people in Persia who probably hated the Jews, and there are probably many, probably the Canaanites hated them the most because the Canaanites, after all, were the people that Moses and Joshua basically destroyed 
in a wave of violence and pillaging and destruction after they left Egypt. So this Agagite Haman, kind of a bad guy to begin with, and he hates the Jews, and he notices this character, Mordecai. And he's a sneaky Machiavellian type of guy, the type of people that rise up in the places where kings are drunks and purveyors of beauty contests. And he sort of lays a trap for Mordecai and the Jews. And he issues a decree. And the decree is, everybody must bow down to me, Haman, because I'm so great. And it's kind of a disingenuous decree because Haman knows that the Jews, of all the people of Persia, with their monotheism and their written law, he reckons that the Jews of all the people are the most unlikely to actually kneel down and comply with this decree, which is what he wants because he's trying to trap the Jews and he's specifically trying to trap this guy, Mordecai. And predictably, Mordecai and presumably other Jews refuse to kneel down to Haman on the grounds that they will only kneel down to God. And for most teachers of the story of Esther and Mordecai and Haman, this is kind of where the story ends and where the moralizing begins. And most people say, you should never bow down to anyone except God. Never bend the knee. The end. But if you stop at this point and you start moralizing too soon, you miss the whole, well, you miss all the good stuff. Because after this, After Mordecai specifically and the Jews in general refused to bow down to Haman, Haman goes to the king and he says, hey, king, we got a rebellion problem here. There's a group of your subjects, the Jews, who aren't going to kneel down to your servants, i.e. me, which is by extension an insult to you, O king. And then Haman came up with a proposal. He said, king, let's kill these Jews. That's the solution, king. We don't know, but we can surmise the king is probably easily manipulated. His attention heretofore in the story has not exactly been focused on the details of running the state, after all. He hasn't exactly acquitted himself as a man of substance yet. And Haman's clearly sneaky, so he's, it's safe to say he's manipulating the king. And he succeeds. The king says yes, and Haman goes out and issues the decree to kill all the Jews, and he picks a date, 13th of the month. And then he also dreams up something especially horrific for that jerk Mordecai, who he sees as the most representative of all that he hates about the Jews. For Mordecai, he's erected a tall stake. He's got some scaffolding around the stake, and his plans are to impale Mordecai by dropping him on this stake. So that's a nice touch. And this is where the story gets really interesting, because Mordecai goes to the queen, his niece, Esther slash Hadassah, who, unlike Mordecai, has never disclosed the fact that she too is a Jew, because she wanted to win the beauty contest and be queen. But Mordecai goes to her and he says, Hey, Esther, it's decision time for you. You've taken full advantage of your savvy, your understanding of all things exoteric here in Persia. Good for you. You became the queen. It helps that you're beautiful, but nice job. But you and I have a little esoteric secret, don't we? We're both people of the faith, monotheists, members of the chosen tribe. And there's this nut job Haman who's manipulated your man, the king, into agreeing to a decree to kill all of us. So you, Esther slash Hadassah, you got a decision to make. You can disclose all things esoteric about you. You can be open about what is really on the inside of you. Talk to the king. Or you can do nothing and keep your little secret. And you, know, and, you, and you start to feel guilty just thinking about this. You can feel the passive-aggressive weight being heaped on Esther's shoulders by Mordecai. And he throws in a zinger at the end and he says, 
who knows, but that thou hast become queen for this purpose. So if you're Esther Hadassah, who's lived on the outside, who's hidden her secret, has lived by all the exoteric rules and, and cultural norms and climbed the exoteric ladder to as high a position as a woman in ancient Persia probably could have, that of being queen, it must have been disheartening to realize that she had not escaped who she really was. She could not escape the esoteric, the specific, the individual aspects of herself. And she was on a collision course, and she had to make a decision. And perhaps the most dramatic, high-pressure environment one could think of. And her response is incredible. Because she basically says, you know, Mordecai, you're right. I got to do something. I got to stop this somehow. And if I perish, I perish. And what's really interesting is not just that choice, but how she went about formulating and executing a plan so that she would be effective in her choice, which required great knowledge of all the things about Persia, the cultural norms, the rules of the court, protocols of interacting with the king and with Haman, with other dignitaries while at the same time being true to all that she was on the inside. A beautiful blending of knowledge of the exoteric and acting on the esoteric. And the way that she set about to save her people was both clever and poetic, and this is what she did. At a risk to her own life, she interrupted the king during one of his great drinking banquets, which it turns out was potentially punishable by death, because you weren't supposed to talk to the king unless you were summoned to the king. But Esther instead barged in on one of these banquets. Well, that's a bold move, but a calculated risk because, you know, she probably figured the king did appreciate her. I mean, she did win the beauty contest after all, and a risk paid off. The king didn't get mad at her for barging in on the banquet unsummoned, but instead he welcomed her in. And then she, seeing Haman sitting there right next to the king, initially made a very small request, which was to invite them to another banquet the next day. You know, we know drunks at banquets, when they're at the peak of being inebriated, are always keen for yet another banquet and more drinking, so they all say, yes, we'll see you tomorrow. Then she went to the chronicler, who had recorded the acts of Mordecai at the beginning of the story, how Mordecai had saved the king by informing him of this plot by the rogue guards to kill him, something the king, because he's drunk all the time, for sure forgot. So the chronicler went to the king after the first banquet and reminded him of this guy, Mordecai, And then with the table set, the second banquet began. And Haman's there, the king and various other vassals and dignitaries and luminaries of Persian society. And at the second banquet, Esther stands up and says, Now, Haman, what's that big, huge, tree-like spike thing doing out in the courtyard? And what are your plans? Which is so beautiful because now Esther is luring Haman into a trap the same way Haman had lured Mordecai and the Jews into a trap. And Haman stands up and he says, well, I'm going to impale that Jew, Mordecai. You know, he doesn't bow down to me, nor do any of the other Jews. In fact, after I impale Mordecai on the spike, on the 13th of this month, we're going to kill them all. And finally rid the kingdom of those Israelites. And Esther kind of says, hmm, you mean the same Mordecai that saved the king? King, did you hear that? Your servant Haman is planning on impaling the man who saved your life. And the king, in spite of being drunk all the time, does remember that the chronicler had come to him just the previous night and told him about Mordecai, reminded him of this fact. And so the king sort of wakes up for a second and has a moment of clarity and says, wait, what? You're going to kill Mordecai? uh, Huh? And then Esther says, oh, yeah. And did you know that Haman's decree to kill all the Jews? Well, that includes me, your queen. 
because I, King, am Jewish too. And with that, her secret is out. And I imagine at that juncture, there was a moment of stunned silence in the hall. And Esther may have thought, well, I finally told everyone what I really think and what I really am. And all the exoteric forces that I've been placating for all these years to gain position status to win the beauty contest, well, these forces may just turn against me now. That was the moment of truth for her. Not unlike the moment of truth we all face at some point when the forces and the norms and the powers outside of us seem to coalesce around us but against us and what we feel and are on the inside. And that was the moment of truth for her. And I suspect for a moment or two or three, she didn't know how it was going to play out. She thought, maybe I just will perish right now. Because it could have been that Haman could have jumped up and said, King, uh, you're stupid, and you're drunk, and I'm a good manipulator. And sorry, the decree stands even if it extends to your queen. He could have turned the tables on the king, got inside his head especially if the king had allowed it. But that's not what happened. I'm sure Haman did try that, but somehow the king was able to resist and the sole redeeming moment for the king in the entire story. He becomes righteously indignant towards Haman. He suddenly wakes up and sees that he's been manipulated. And the results for Haman are poor, to say the least. He's taken out. And he's impaled on the spike that he erected to kill Mordecai. Haman, impaled. And Mordecai and the Jews are actually rewarded with freedoms, powers, additional independence, which I think is as much a part of the story as the rest of it. Because that's what happens when you finally know what you are on the inside and and you stop being ashamed of it and you're able to be open. Additional freedom and blessings ensue because everybody's got something they're hiding, some secret knowledge or viewpoints about themselves that they're protecting closing off. And it's always so refreshing when you meet people who just are what they are, because those people convey a confidence to all of us to be what God has created you to be, to think what God has created you to think and to not be ashamed of it. And if you perish, you perish. That's okay, because it's better to perish than to be ashamed. What an interesting story about the way the world works, about the way society works, about the dynamics of the group about cultural norms, protocols, and practices, and about all that's secretive and esoteric in our lives. How those two aspects of ourselves clash in battle and are in conflict, and how at certain junctures one must decide whether or not to stand up to the Hamans of the world, whether or not to risk humiliation, even death, by being true to oneself. Because at the end of the day, that's the only person you can't be true to. You really can't be true to the exoteric. I mean, you can but you really can't primarily be true to the exoteric because you live life inside your head and in your heart and you have to live with yourself first. And only when you do that can you be really clever in helping others. Well, I've gone on far too long. I hope you found something interesting here today. Please do email me at mormonawakenings at gmail.com or find me at Facebook. Becomes with Jack and Nick. Until next time. 